Hi again, this is James Eek, and you are listening to Warrior's Way Podcast. This is episode 73. The police in Cambridge, Massachusetts showed no mercy to John Kabat-Zinn in May 1970. The man now considered the godfather of modern mindfulness was a graduate student from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an anti-Vietnam War protester, agitating alongside the Black Panthers and the French playwright Jean Genet. I got my entire face battered in, he recalls. They put this instrument on my wrist called the claw, which they tightened to generate enormous amounts of pain without leaving any marks. But they certainly left a lot of marks on my face. They pulled me into the back of the police station and beat the shit out of me. Today at 73, Kabat-Zinn's restful, lined face shows no scars from that protest outside the police station when a trip canvassing support for a nationwide university strike boiled over into violence, leaving him with stitches. He sits beneath the statue of Mahatma Gandhi on Parliament Square in London, taking a breather after going straight from an overnight flight out of Boston into a 90-minute talk to a gathering of international parliamentarians about how he thinks mindfulness could, and to put it bluntly, change the world. The once very macho anti-war activist who raged against MIT's role in nuclear weapons research is a catalyst behind the West's mushrooming interest in mindfulness meditation. Having reimagined Buddhist contemplation practices for a secular age almost 40 years ago. With others, he pioneered an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course at the University of Massachusetts Medical School for patients with chronic pain, harnessing the fundamentals of mindfulness meditation as taught by the Buddha, but with the Buddhism taken out. I bent over backwards to structure it and find ways to speak about it that avoided it as much as possible, the risk of being seen as Buddhist, New Age, Eastern mysticism, or just plain flaky, he says. Kabat-Zinn has been meditating since 1965, but had no compunction in playing the Buddhism right down. I got into this through the Zen door, which is very irreverent approach to Buddhism, he says. He talks a lot about Dharma, the term for Buddha's teaching. But he's not a Buddhist and remarks that to insist mindfulness meditation is Buddhist is like saying gravity is English because it was identified by Sir Isaac Newton. The UMass Stress Reduction Clinic opened its doors in 1979 and taught people with chronic back pain, victims of industrial accidents, cancer patients, and sometimes paraplegics. Kabat-Zinn has defined mindfulness meditation as the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. By focusing on the breath, the idea is to cultivate attention on the body and mind as it is moment to moment, and so help with pain, both physical and emotional. It often results in apprehending the constantly changing nature of sensations, even highly unpleasant ones and thus their impermanence, he says. It also gives rise to the direct experience that pain is not me. As a result, some of his patients found ways to be in a different relationship with their pain. 
Others felt it diminish. The title of his 1990 bestseller about the clinic captures his approach to accepting whatever life throws at you. Full catastrophe living. Now, in 19, or in 2017, Kabat-Zinn vibrates with an urgent belief that meditation is the radical act of love and sanity. The sanity we need in the age of Trump. Accelerating climate change and disasters such as the Grenfell Tower Fire. He has a platform to build on. Mindfulness courses ultimately derive from his work are now being rolled out in the UK to school pupils, convicts, civil servants, and even politicians. It's described on the NHS in some areas to prevent recurrent depression with 2,256 people completing eight-week courses last year. The course reduces the likelihood of relapse by almost a third, according to an analysis of nine trials. His supporters even suggest that Kabat-Zinn's pioneering work could one day see him mentioned in the same breath as Darwin and Einstein. But mindfulness, Kabat-Zinn figures, must now be harnessed in a bigger way than so far seen, to do nothing less than challenge the way the world is run. The latest mission is why he has flown into London to speak to parliamentarians from 15 countries about how to act more wisely. If this is another fad, I don't want to have any part of it, he says. If in the past 50 years I had found something more meaningful, more healing, more transformative, and with more potential social impact, I'd be doing that. There are signs others agree with its potential. Globally, 18 million people subscribe to the Headspace app, practicing mindfulness meditations through their headphones. In the shops, ranges of mindfulness clothing, not least drop of mindfulness tights. The only thing mindful seems to be the brand name. Coloring books and even dot-to-dot puzzles testify to the idea's growing ubiquity. Even if Kabat-Zinn derides much of this as mick mindfulness. His work has attracted the share of skeptics, such as Miguel Ferris and Catherine Wickholm, authors of The Buddha Pill, who caution that mindfulness is no cure all and warns of a dark side if not taught correctly. Will Combe, a clinical psychologist, has said that the fact that meditation was primarily, primarily designed not to make us happier, but to destroy our sense of individual self, who we feel and think we are most of the time, is often overlooked in the science and media stories about it. There have also been 20 published case reports or observational studies where people's experiences of meditation were distressing enough to warrant further treatment, according to a recent study. They include meditation-induced psychosis, mania, depersonalization, anxiety, panic, and re-experiencing traumatic memories. Kabat-Zinn and other highly experienced teachers point out that these are rare incidents and mostly relate to intensive retreats other, rather than the routine courses where, medi- where meditators practice for perhaps half an hour a day. 
He also admits that 90% of the research into the positive impacts is subpar, with major studies still needed. Kabat-Zinn's decision to pour his energy into trying to inject mindfulness into global politics should come as no surprise. In the political tumult at MIT in the late 1960s, he helped establish the Science Action Coordinating Committee to campaign against the university's work with the Department of Defense, including research into multiple warhead nuclear missiles. His activity regularly made the front page of the student paper The Tech, as he appeared on platforms with Noam Chomsky, supported the Viet Cong, and on one occasion translated the radical French playwright Jean Gannett's call for revolution. They meditated before actions, but one week it reported how he and others stormed a meeting of the MIT corporation chanting, kick the ass out of the ruling class, end war research, and power to the people. In 1969, he told a meeting, we are approaching a critical, unique point in history. We're approaching an ego disaster of major proportions, overpopulation, pollution of every conceivable kind, including mental. When I read that back to Kabat-Zinn in Parliament Square, his response is urgent. We're worried about that right now, too, he says. Trump is crazier than anything we've ever seen. This is our work at the moment, to see if we can maintain a degree of sanity and recognition of the fears and concerns of those who do not see the world the way we do. The temptation is to fall into camps where you dehumanize the other, and no matter what they do, they are wrong, and no matter what we do, we are right. Trump's threats to annihilate North Korea are one example of people losing their minds, as in the lead poisoning of the water supply in Flint, Michigan. This month, he's traveling there to speak at a benefit for the victims of the 2014 decision to replace the supply with undertreated water. The human mind, when it doesn't do the work of mindfulness, winds up becoming a prisoner of its own myopic perspectives that pulls me above everything else, he says. We're so caught up in the dualistic perspective of us and them But ultimately, there is no them. That's what we need to wake up to. Kabat-Zinn has just written a paper arguing that amid the ascendancy of Trump and the forces and values he represents, endemic racism and police violence and persistent social and economic justices, this may indeed be a pivotal moment for our species to come to our senses, mobilizing in the mainstream world the power of mindfulness. He's at the House of Commons to make his case, but first he must get his get past the guards at the airport-style security system. While everyone else unpacks their laptops for the scanner, Kabat-Zinn produces a pair of ancient-looking copper meditation chimes to the complete amusement of the guard, who tries to confiscate them. When Kabat-Zinn explains there for meditation, the puzzlement only deepens as security staff gather to discuss the threat. Finally, when he mentions it is for mindfulness, there is a flash of recognition and he is waved through. It's a moment of satisfaction for Kabat-Zinn. If a security guard knows the score, it must be catching on. Kabat-Zinn was born into a non-practicing Jewish family and raised in Upper Manhattan, near where his father worked as a scientist at Columbia. 
It was rough and tough on the streets around Washington Heights, and he joked, he is the world's most improbable meditator, a street kid from New York. He started meditating while studying molecular biology at MIT in 1965 when a talk by Zen Buddhist Philip Philip Kaplow took the top off my head. In 1979, married with children and working at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, he had a 10-second vision on a meditation retreat in the woods 80 miles from Boston. I saw in a flash not only a model that could be put in place, but also long-term implications, he says. Kabat-Zinn foresaw mindfulness clinics spreading to hospitals and clinics with thousands of practitioners earning a living in a good cause. Because it was so weird, I hardly ever mentioned this experience to others. But it was so compelling, I decided to take it on a wholeheartedly as best as I could. Anyone who's tried to meditate knows how hard it is when the mind keeps wandering into thoughts, sometimes trivial, sometimes not. The difficulty people in chronic pain must have in embracing the elusive quality of attentiveness cannot be overestimated. But in Kabat-Zinn, they had an experienced teacher. For more than 30 years, every morning at 5 o'clock, I would go do yoga and then sit on cushion and meditate. He stayed with his eight-week stress reduction program until the year 2000, spreading its influence through books, guided meditation CDs, teaching at retreats, and endless conferences. In 2002, Welsh psychologist Mark Williams worked with colleagues at Cambridge and in Toronto to combine the U.S. program with cognitive behavioral therapy to form an eight-week mindfulness-based CBT course that in 2004 was recommended for prescription on the NHS for recurrent depression. Williams taught mindfulness to the comedian Ruby Wax at Oxford University when she was looking to tackle her depression. She then popularized it through her 2013 book, Sane New World. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, or MBCT, has been shown to be at least as effective as antidepressants at preventing relapses. And in a two-year trial by William Kukin's team, 44% of MBCT cohort relapsed compared to 47% on pills. One trial of 173 people, it was also found to reduce the severity of current depression with an average 37% reduction in symptoms. It's being taught wildly in the private sector with qualified MBCT teachers delivering courses in parish halls, workplaces, and beyond. The science of meditation is in its infancy, Kabat-Zinn says. We need decades more study. People talk about artificial intelligence and learning mach- machine learning, but we haven't scratched the surface of what human intelligence is really all about. So now Kabat-Zinn travels the globe. He's fascinated by teaching in China, where he has detected a rebirth in the country's contemplative traditions as a way of tackling its challenges. He leads five-day retreats in the U.S., runs courses in Austria, Korea, and Japan. Lately, he's been talking with David Simas, a former White House advisor, and now executive, or chief executive at the Obama Foundation, who was inspired to take up mindfulness meditation by Kabat-Zinn. 
I feel it's my responsibility since to a large degree people blame me for starting this whole ball rolling to participate in whatever way I can, he says. This is, in some sense, the fruition of that 10-second vision I had in 1979. So that is from an article from The Guardian from October 2017 by Robert Booth. So if you are one of the constant listeners to this podcast, you'll know that I am a big proponent of meditation or mindfulness or whatever else you might want to call it. Um, I myself... If you don't know, I am an ordained lay Zen Buddhist. Just basically means I took Buddhist vows oh, <laughs> longer ago than I want to admit to. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, about 26 years or so ago now. Maybe longer. Jeez, time flies. Um, but what we're talking about here, for those who aren't quite up to speed, is calming the mind, integration of breath and focus, and otherwise, to be honest, just chilling out and learning how to do it in a real and useful way. Now, this is nothing new. It isn't something religious. It isn't something that you need some special skill to do. It isn't something that takes a ton of time. What we're talking about is simply learning to be in the present. And I'm all for that. I don't know how anybody couldn't be. Now, being in the present may or may not be important to you. I'm not going to judge you on that one. But for me, I think that an unexamined life is really not worth living. And that means working hard to peel back all the false views and all the baggage, all the false beliefs to find out who this guy talking to you right now really is. And in the end, if you think about it, figuring out who you are and your place in the universe is really all that is important in this life because you're not going to be here forever. Everything else is secondary. You are all you have. And I don't mean that in a, you know, develop your ego kind of way. I mean that in a very real way. You are all you have. And most of us don't even have that. Mindfulness isn't going to make you a superhuman. Not even if you meditate all day, every day. <laughs> what it will do is help make you human, fully human without playing into all the drama. Now, here's some advice. You need to learn how to meditate from someone who is taught properly. It's kind of like jujitsu. Meditation brings things up. You have to understand what some of that is and where it comes from. For instance, like I said, I've been you know, involved in, in Zen officially, <laughs> I guess you could say, for a few decades now. Um, and when I was in my mid-20s, I had a pretty intense experience when I was meditating. Actually, I actually had a few of them, but one big one. And my Zen master that I was training with at the time explained to me that from time to time, experiences happen, but that they don't mean much. They're just experiences no different than anything else that happens when meditating or when not meditating. We are best just to let it go. 
And in hindsight, that is honestly the best advice I could have been given, especially at that time. I think that without it, I would have possibly been thinking that I had achieved something, you know, or encountered some kind of enlightenment. And let's face it, when you're in your 20s, you don't want to think that you're enlightened. <laughs> um, really, what I've come to learn since then is there is no final enlightenment. Enlightenment is a process. It's not an occurrence. And when you think you're enlightened, you almost never are. Maybe never are. <laughs> Meditation's power is in that it works kind of like an internal vacuum where with time, it'll help you clean up the mess that we ourselves and living in our world have made of us. When you do that, interesting things can come up. Now, none of that's to scare you away from it. But in this time of having apps for everything, we can more easily than ever be about to introduce mindfulness and meditation into our lives. But we can also end up doing so without ever having any real instruction. And, you know, I don't think you'd want to learn jujitsu from somebody who, you know, only looked online, <laughs> studied a few YouTube videos. Just like learning a martial art from watching videos, but not having a teacher, you'll end up with more problems than benefits, if you know what I'm saying. I should point out a couple of other things too. Meditation is the actual process of meditating. Sitting, walking, whatever it is. Mindfulness, that's the intent. It's the effort to live in the now. Mindfulness is vital to your training. It's something that we can bring into every aspect and every moment of our lives. It will help you to see your life as it really is. For those who think they don't have the time, do you have a minute? 30 seconds? <laughs> How about five minutes? I can guarantee you do. You're spending time listening to this podcast, and I bet you have a host of other things that you think will help your life. And so, too, can you spend the time learning or practicing meditation and mindfulness. If you have a smartphone, set yourself some reminders to count your breath. If you want to meditate, Give up a, get up a little earlier and get it on. And that may be the best advice you will ever get in your life. Meditate. Just do it. So with that said, if you're not meditating yet, <laughs> let's go to the question of the week. Um, John wrote and asked, I want to get in better shape. How much should I be working out? And that's a great question. I'd suggest you do something active every day. So get those 10,000 steps. Take the dog for a walk. Do some squats. Do some push-ups. If you're talking about going to the gym, I'd suggest you hit it at least three to five days a week. Myself, I go to the gym five days a week. Three days are more of an upper body kind of focus plus some cardio, like a run on a treadmill or the assault bike. And then two days a week, 
I do lower body and core and some more cardio. Realize that you work out so that you can do all the things you love. Pretty simple. Don't make it about anything more than that. Make it about getting the most out of your life. You know, as a result, you're going to look better in the mirror. (laughs) But don't make going to the gym about looking in the mirror. Believe me. Go to any gym and there's enough people already looking at the mirror. Now, don't get in your head that doing those deadlifts are going to improve your jujitsu or whatever. Jujitsu improves jujitsu. We work out so that we can be in the best shape that we can be in so that we can continue to do everything, including jujitsu and all those other things we love for as long as we can. So there you go. Get into the gym. Work out. Get in shape. Do as much as you can to stay in shape. Just keep doing it. It's a outlook on your life, I'd have to say. So there you go. I think we're going to end it there. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, if you feel so obliged, uh, we have Warriors Way Fight Club t-shirts available. You can find a link to that on our Warriors Way podcast Facebook page. Or drop me a line and I can send it to you. Um, we also have a Patreon page set up if you want to put some, you know, money behind keeping this thing going. Because, yeah, you know, it's free. And this thing takes time. And time is, you know, if you want to see something go on forever, you're going to have to support it. That's just the bottom line, man. <laughs> um The other thing is, if you like this sort of podcast, if you listen to a few of them already and you're like, yeah, this is pretty good. This guy is interesting. Um, (laughs) First off, (laughs) oh boy. And secondly, (laughs) um, you can always pick up one of my books. There you go. And I will, you know, think you're an awesome person for doing it. Um, You can pick up those on Amazon. You can get a copy of a actual hold it in your hands kind of book or you can get the ebooks for your Kobo or your Kindle from the usual places. You can also find me on Instagram. Just look for Eek Academy. That's my martial arts school in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, you can find me on Facebook with the Eek Academy and Martial Arts. The Warriors Way podcast of course, also has a page. So get on there and like it. And uh, if you're liking this thing, drop me a line. Let me know. If you have a question of the week, send it my way. If you have an idea for a future podcast, same thing. Let me know about it. Because this thing has legs thanks to you. (laughs) And with that, enough listen to this thing. Go meditate. Better yet, hit the mats. Get out there. Train hard. Have fun. Be a good friend. And you know what? Help this planet out a little bit, man. Think about things you can do to make it better. What can you do to cut down on all the junk that you don't need that is just adding to problems? Make it a better world because you were in it. Thanks a lot.